Hi, I'm Bernard Leong, and you may know me as the executive who have read and still comprehending Xi Jinping's two volumes of governance in China. And in my spare time, I want to understand whether China and US will eventually end up in a trade war from an Asian perspective. You're listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business, technology, and media in Asia. And today, I have an old friend who I know a long time ago when we were both studying back in the University of Cambridge, UK. James Chow, a news anchor, editor at China US Focus, and World Health Organization Goodwill Ambassador. Welcome, James. And it's a great honor to have you on Analyze Asia podcast for the first time. Thanks very much, Bernard. I hope it will be just the first of many times, not the last time. That's right. And we have met when you were still doing your undergraduate in Cambridge. And that time I was doing my postgraduate. And I remember we always discuss about foreign affairs and worldly affairs and in parties and etc. So after that, you went on and became a news anchor and also now hosting your own podcast with China US Focus. So I wanted to ask you since that period where we departed, how did you start your career and where are you now? Well, it's accidental if you look back at it, because when I was growing up and up until I was at university, for the first 16 years at least, I thought that my life would eventually lead into music. I was a pianist and I studied at the Royal Academy of Music when I was 12. So I started very early in that conservatory environment where the students are there to grow a career in music as professional musicians. As it turned out, I had a car accident when I was 16, and I think it opened up my eyes to a wider world. It's very good to be focused and to be focused on one thing, but I think at the same time, one needs to be aware of your surroundings, the opportunity that that brings, and also the need to reinvent oneself sometimes. So when I was 16, even though it sounds very young, I think that my life was on one track. And then I had to find a way to make myself relevant all over again. I think that's very hard. You know, a lot of people don't know what they want to do when they're at university or even well after beyond. And I understand that, but I thought that I had one plan for life and that didn't happen. So eventually it led me to the other thing, which is television, I always say, thank God, I learned how to read and write when I was in school, and um, I could write. So I started writing in college and writing for student newspapers and for anyone who would publish my work. And that eventually led to television, journalism more widely, and television more specifically. And I suppose that's how it all began. Mm. And you have been with Hong Kong TVB, which is a very well-known television station, and also a guest presenter on Horizons, the award-winning show at BBC, which I watched, and also a long-time anchor on CCTV News, or now people call it CGTN. In fact, I've seen you on the National Day of 2008, where you were on screen. So you have the opportunity to actually interview a lot of interesting people, whether it's Muhammad Yunus, Ban Ki-moon, Christine Lagarde, and many important people globally. What are your impressions of their thinking and the experience of interviewing these movers and shakers in the world? I think the one thing that they do share, even though they are very different, if you place them one against the other, is the ability to anticipate what the major trends are going to be. And quite often, these personalities are, are of course, not just eyewitnesses to those changes, but are participants are key actors in the 
transformation that they help shape. So they predict, but also they help to influence and to create and realize that vision that they foresee. And I think that what else they possess in terms of unique skills is the ability to share that from their own platforms, but with the linkages to the major challenges of the day. The major challenges of today is not so different to what it was like 15 or 18 years ago when I first started in journalism, whether it be climate change, environmental protection, economic stability, refugees, and I think more deeply the quest for social justice and how to achieve that on balance, not just for the countries where health burdens are greatest, for example, but for everybody. You know, all of us have a right to the best life that we can achieve. And I think with the sustainable development goals, which I'm now working on, you see a more even spread, partly because it builds on the Millennium Development Goals that came before it that focused really only on the countries that were the poorest and most vulnerable in infrastructures. But I think also because now, as you know, Bernard, we're living in a time where many countries and many continents that were regarded as global leaders are experiencing severe challenges to their own identities, identities as countries and communities and identities as individuals. And of course, we think about Brexit, we think about Europe as a whole, we think about the United States, we think about China uh, included amongst that, we think about Latin America and Africa. But I think it's very important through the interviews I've done that what I've also learned is the, again, the ability to reinvent, to adapt to changes, and also to pick out amongst the many different strands of thought, which ones are most relevant to you and can benefit you the most, while also improving the choices and the opportunities for mankind as a whole. And of course, we are living in a very interesting times because of the polarization, as you mentioned, Brexit, populism, and all the sort of fake news and all the different things that are happening as well. You have recently gone to the US and have the opportunity to speak to former US President Jimmy Carter again. What are the new takeaways you learned from the conversation with him this time around? Well, I interviewed him about 14 months ago, and then, as you said, a few weeks ago. In some ways, it was remarkably different. Maybe, I think, because having spoken to him once, I was more acutely aware of what I wanted the second time round, and also because of my own awareness of where the world is headed as a whole. In terms of him, you know, what makes him so fascinating and so important, which is more than fascinating, is that he had his four years in the White House, yet he's gone on to create the post-presidency president. He's given life and definition to a person who should be retired from politics, but in his case, has gone on to pursue a career that is as vibrant and meaningful as the ones he spent as an elected politician. And I think that what I came away with this time was a restored faith in faith, faith in my religion, because he spoke about religion to some extent. But I think what's more universally relatable is faith in an improved state of the world. Here is a man who, well into his 90s, who has seen some of the worst times, if you think about Laos and Cambodia, Vietnam. You know, his presidency came on the back foot of all that. He has such incredible belief in our abilities 
as human beings and in our capacity to do work for the good. So that's what I came out of the room thinking after speaking to him. And I was thinking before our own conversation, Bernard, about what parts of that time with President Carter were the most touching. You know, I asked him how he first came to be interested in China because I read in his book that as a young boy, meaning well under the age of 10, he used to donate a nickel a week, which was a significant sum of money for a young boy in 1920s Georgia, that he would give to missionaries to help build schools and hospitals in China. And so I wondered what interested him about this country on the other side of the planet when they spoke a different language, they looked very differently to the people whom he grew up with, which were largely people of European descent and African-Americans. He grew up in Archery, which was a largely African-American community. And he told me that the missionaries were what influenced him in the very beginning. The missionaries, the women who went to China, and then they came back with these wonderful stories about what was happening over there. And then he linked that to a story about Deng Xiaoping, who, after they set up the relationship, the normalization of the China-US relationship, Deng asked him, what's the one thing that you would want? What would you want specifically? So he said, without missing a beat, that he wanted freedom of worship in China, the distribution of Bibles, and the return of American missionaries. And Deng said, well, let me think about it. I'll get back to you tomorrow. And he came back the next day and told Carter that after much thought, he was going to change the laws to guarantee freedom of worship in China. He's going to allow the distribution of Bibles, but no to missionaries, because, as you know, many people, not just in China, but in countries which saw this huge influx of missionaries, saw it as a form of colonialism. So it was really interesting to me that the beginning of his life was very much linked to what he's gone on to achieve as a man. That's probably the most interesting part of your journey too. You have an interesting career being in tune as a news anchor on what's happening across the world. So I want to ask you, what are the interesting lessons you can share with my audience on your career? Wow, I think they're important to me. I don't know if anybody else would think it's important, but I've always seen it as a huge privilege to be able to sit in front of, say, Robert Mugabe or Winnie Mandela or Jimmy Carter and to be able to ask questions, not only the questions that I want answers to, but questions that I hope and I believe that other people will want to be asked. So I see myself as a vessel, in a sense, as a conduit, a messenger. And to be able to share that experience more widely, especially in this era of technology and social media, has been one of the great opportunities. From Winnie Mandela, I guess I took away that reconciliation is very important, that you are met with a series of choices in life at different moments in history where you have a choice to either go left or right or somewhere in between. And I always believe that it was the compassionate influence of Nelson Mandela and to some extent, Winnie Mandela, who was the mother of this struggle and eventual victory against apartheid that opened up South Africa to the world and then installed South Africa as a beacon of hope for the world in which it remains today. But that story could have ended very differently. And yet the key actors influenced the communities they led to make good choices. So... 
that's one thing I think about. And I suppose when I think of the other people, like Mahathir Mohammed, whom I've just interviewed in Malaysia, what I also think is don't count anybody out. I remember in the years in which he was not prime minister, probably, say, five years ago, I expressed to some people that I wanted to go and interview him. And they said to me, why would you want to interview him? He's an old man. He's past it. He's expired. He's not relevant. He just wants to be heard. He just talks. And I think it's very important not to be swayed too much by what other people think, even if that's the popular opinion. I have always admired him and always believed that he had so much more to give and to offer, even if you're not in elected office at the time. So I think it's very easy to diminish people, especially if they're not in current positions of power. But the Mahati example alone and what he goes on to achieve every day in Malaysia, no matter how complex and difficult and insurmountable it may appear to be, proves again that everybody is relevant and never count anybody out. Mm. It seems that in this era, we seem to have forgotten the peace that we have gotten through a lot of conflicts and people are now forgetting the lessons they have learned probably a hundred years ago. We seem to be going into a time of unknown. You are currently an editor with China US Focus, an initiative of the China United States Exchange Foundation and you have a podcast there as well. What's the aim of the initiative and who are the audience that you're trying to reach? Well, the audience I'm trying to reach is a younger demographic because that's the spirit of the US-China relationship. You talk about peace and I think about 1979 and I think about Carter and Deng Xiaoping, how they came together. And one of the first things they chose to do was to establish an educational exchange, the legacy of which has been millions of young people, more from China, admittedly, going to the United States, but uh, two ways nonetheless. And I've worked with young people my whole life through the One Young World Conference as a young person myself, as someone who's benefited from youth leadership frameworks. And this is what I think captures the bilateral relationship, the ability to infuse peace through young people who are at the beginning of their lives in many sense and who have the capacity, who have the skills, especially today with the advance in technology to be at the forefronts of transformation and forefronts, yes, of the battlefield. But as you said, back in the 70s, there were so many conflicts at the time. And someone told me at the Carter Center a couple of weeks ago in Atlanta that not since 1979 has an American soldier died on a battlefield in East Asia in those 40 years since. So when I think of that relationship, I think of all the possibilities, not just for these two countries, but for everybody. It should be an inclusive achievement for all. So the China-United States Exchange Foundation is founded on that principle that we want to bring people together in the belief that this is the most important bilateral relationship globally. I think we can almost agree on that today, at least economically, politically, 
as two of the five permanent security members of the UN Security Council, and so and so forth. I mean, you know, the United States and China, how they exert their influence is so critical, but how they come together is perhaps even more so. So it's a belief that through this very, very important dynamic, that you bring people together, that you share, that you're inclusive. And through all that, you try to replicate the peace that we want to achieve for everybody. You know, without peace, there can be no development. I learned that from Margaret Chan when she was Director General of the World Health Organization. And she says, whether you're talking about Ebola in West Africa, or whether you're talking about elsewhere in the world, if you don't have peace, if you don't have stability, you can't begin building the health infrastructures or social infrastructures that lead to prosperity, that lead to job growth, that lead to economic wealth in any community. So that comes to the main subject of the day, which I want to talk to you about, which is the China and US relationship. I think what is interesting that is ongoing is if you look at currently, we are now in mid-February and hopefully by March 1st, they would have hashed out an agreement. But I have recently read from the different news sources that uh, that might also be delayed. But I want to take a step back and look at where we are now. What is the chronology behind US and China's relationship and how did it end up towards a pending trade war given that so much tensions have been ongoing in the last two years ever since President Trump came to be? Well, I'm going to try and avoid oversimplifying it. It's easy to look at the trade war or the trade disputes or a trade skirmish, as I prefer to call it. And we'll get back to that uh, and date that back to the past year or maybe even to the beginning of the new administration in Washington. But I think if you look further back, let's just say to the earlier parts of the 20th and 21st centuries, you'll see that China was a very, very poor country. Let's just agree on 1979. So when you had that normalization of the relationship between the US and China, I think more than 90% of Chinese at that time, which was about 900 million plus, uh, were living in poverty. They were desperate, they were hungry, and they didn't necessarily have a vision to achieve a better life. Deng obviously saw something very different. He saw potential and he knew that he could chart away. So you had the US-China relationship, which wasn't a separate event to the bigger framework it was embedded within, which was opening up and reform. So China was a very poor country, and we've already spoken about peace and how that then led to trade, how today they are each other's biggest trading partners, doing it about $712 billion worth of trade annually. Then you have the World Trade Organization, and China entered in December 2001 through the Doha ministerial meeting, and I was there reporting at the time. So you fast forward now to a very different picture. Everything's been going so well through George Bush Jr., through Barack Obama, and now with President Trump and his cabinet. And there is very much a belief today on the American side, at least the official line, because that's very different to what American business are saying. They're extremely worried. They don't want this dispute with Chinese counterparts. But at least if you look at the White House, they're saying 
There's been a long time abuse of what they call a broken international system, which has led in part to the unfair practices with China as they see it today. From my take, I think that is a system, broken or not, that's obviously enriched the United States, has propelled it to becoming the world's number one economy. But does that system need to be reformed? It was drawn along the lines of the post Second World War period. It's the Bretton Woods system where we have the IMF, the World Bank, the G7, a financial order that's largely, absolutely unchanged in the year 2019. Now you have a new player, China, and it's not just China, you've got Brazil, you have India, you have South Africa, you have Russia, you have other countries, Indonesia, Malaysia as well. And I think what's happened is that there's been a certain amount of space and the traditional players have found it very difficult to say that we're willing to either share that space or actually voluntarily take a sidestep and say, come and join us. We know that when people come together, magical things happen. You collaborate, you compete, and together, through that healthy competition, you achieve something for everybody. When I think about an iPhone, I think not just about an American handset. It says it on the back, design in California, made in China. And that's the magic of what happens when you bring talent together. These two countries personify that talent, but it's not restricted to two countries. And so I think largely what's happened is that China has expanded its influence in the world, and perhaps some people are not so happy about that. And I think that I agree with you wholeheartedly that a lot of things are very nuanced because from the way how the media, probably Western media shaping the way how we think about it is pretty one-dimensional. But I want to sort of zoom in a little bit to the understanding of this. Can you provide the context, say, if a trade war were to happen, what would it mean in the context of the current one between US and China? Is it when the talks break down and the terrorists happen? Or is it going to be different demands are met and fulfilled between both sides or compromises? Well, you know, Jamie Dimon, you know, he said that it's not a trade war. He calls it a trade skirmish. And the reason why he limits it still to skirmish, he says that we can add tariffs to more things and the Chinese can retaliate in other ways. And I don't think all that's good. It's not a devastating thing. It's not a war. It's a trade skirmish that can have negative economic effects. Those economic effects will range from anything from higher consumer prices to families in the rural Midwest in the United States being hurt. I think not just of countries. I think we should think of in terms of communities and whether we're American, whether we're Chinese, uh, no matter what our backgrounds uh, happen to be, I think we should all think about it in terms of people so that we don't see it as a them and us, but we as fellow members and equal members of humanity, uh, what do we stand to lose? In terms of a trade war versus a trade dispute or trade skirmish, I think you know, you've already indicated that it's very different Trade war is the word 
and terminology that's commonly used across media. But if it really was a war, then you wouldn't have negotiators sitting down regularly at uh, scheduled stops. There hasn't been a breakdown in negotiations or communications. There's still very much a great sense of hope. Uh, the United States and China certainly do want to work with each other. And I think in terms of the Chinese side, they are open to trying to find a better way forward, which will help reduce the trade deficit that the American leadership is so concerned about. When you look at the trade deficit, now this is one of the problems over here, the widely reported figure is at around 320 billion US dollars give or take and certainly if you minus imports from exports then you'll get a similar figure in terms of an annual trade deficit but if you look at the nuances the word that you yourself used Bernard uh, Larry Lau an economist based over in Hong Kong an academic has been looking at uh, value-added trade deficit and he calculates it at little more than a hundred billion dollars so certainly we seem to be thinking seem to be seeing through the tit-for-tat retaliation going on right now that trade deficit shrinking but the balance could be a lot closer in a future than the larger figure that the u.s bureau of economic analysis has been touting with the help with all media but I think that, you know, if you're starting with different base numbers, it's hard to come to an agreement sooner. I think this is where I'm pretty curious to know, is it because of the rise of China, for example, the Belt and Road Initiative, and also the difficulty of Western companies entering China, for example, we know that technology companies in Silicon Valley have a lot of difficulty operating in China, they are almost all banned. And also intellectual property arguments between both countries. Is that why it has been going towards this relationship now to almost they're getting into what is called a Tulisis trap, where they might eventually push themselves towards conflict? Or is there an alternative route that there may be the third way where they can still coexist peacefully, but compete as rivals at the same time? Well, first of all, I think they will find a way to coexist peacefully. They found a way to do that over the last 40 years, and in particular, in the three-decade period of silence before that normalization after the Second World War. And I think that we as humans, we're very, you know, we're very stubborn and we're very foolish and we're not wise in many ways. We allow history to repeat, but also we're incredibly good at adapting and being flexible when we're forced to be sometimes. I think they will find a way through because they don't really have a choice. The planet, in a way, rests on our choices. And when you have the two lead actors globally, battling it out, then they certainly will find a way to make it happen. So I'm not concerned about that. But in terms of intellectual property rights, you're looking at China, which is so many stages behind the United States. When you look at America, it's got Silicon Valley, it's got Stanford, Harvard, Princeton. They've got all these incredible institutions where they drive the way we interact with one another. And I think we should all be grateful to them for that alone. If American businesses weren't allowed into China, then we wouldn't have McDonald's, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, Boeing, Starbucks, Apple, Nike, Facebook, Procter & Gamble, products like Coke or 
Pampers, General Motors. I read that General Motors sells more cars in China than it does in the United States. It sells more iPhones, Apple does, in China than it does in the United States. So this myth, I think, that has been allowed to roll and roll and get bigger like a snowball is incorrect that American business aren't allowed in China. If you look at the figures as well, the Chinese Commerce Ministry put it at 68,000 U.S. businesses currently in operation in China. And Chinese subsidiaries of U.S. companies are turning in huge amounts of money every year. And these are the companies that are very worried about this trade dispute and how it's going to hurt them first and foremost. So I think, you know, what you said in terms of a China rise You know, I think even that phrase, which is accurate, if you look at it, China has risen in terms of economy, influence, standing and dignity. Uh, But I think that phrase has come now to be associated with something that's very negative, that you have to be afraid of someone in case they loom larger than you, that they stand taller than you. So instead of rise, I would see it as an expansion, naturally people grow when they have been fed. So I think, you know, a lot of it has to do with that, that people are worried about China. What they need to try and do is to stop trying to make China in its own image, which has been the way the missionaries did before, which has been the way of many of the developed nations, and instead try to engage it on terms that are truly equal on terms that are truly respectful, not just to the Chinese, but the Chinese need to do that in return as well. It's a two-way relationship. It's a multi-way relationship. And certainly the Chinese need to learn to do that if it hasn't already. And I think that this is very reminiscent of the Japanese in the 1970s, 1980s, as well with the US relationship and also Korea in the 1990s. And now we have China. If you read the Western media and you read their foreign policy experts, what people have been talking about is that the United States is trying to push China towards a new type of Cold War and people now talking about digital Cold War. And where the U.S. is gathering its allies, for example, the European Union in banning Huawei, for example, on the pretext of cybersecurity and stopping Chinese technology companies, for example, Alibaba to acquire any U.S. companies. So, for example, they couldn't even get the Huawei phones out through uh, AT&T in the U.S. So does that mean that what they're actually currently doing is also impedes China's ambition to be a technology independent nation. I mean, the ZTE incident was one example that a Chinese company could just fall apart because of something like that going on there. I read an article in the Sydney Morning Herald, the Australian newspaper, that said that last summer leaders from, and I'm not sure at what level of leadership, but representatives and perhaps is a more accurate term, of the Five Eyes nations, so the UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and I'm missing one out, but it'll come to me, met and they made a decision there that they were going to corner Huawei and push it out of the market. So if that's the case, then you would see a traditional alliance based on the previous British Empire, English language speaking, trying to single out and trying to push up. The consequence of that is going to be this, and it's what Carter told me when I met with him. He talked about the 
possibility, the real possibility of a modern Cold War. And remember, he was a leader during the height of the Cold War in the late 70s and early 80s himself. And I asked him, I said, you know, you warned that a modern Cold War is not inconceivable if misperceptions and miscalculations are allowed to continue. So what parallels did he see between, say, 79, 78, 81, 82, to what he sees now in 2019. And he said back in the days when he was serving as president, the United States was struggling against the Soviet Union as a potential military superpower and also competing with the Soviet Union in almost every small country around the world, some major ones for influence and for trade benefits. And he says that what he's now trying to do in his current role is to prevent China and the United States from walking down that same track. He wants to see uh, and identify ways to group them together rather than to exacerbate what's being perceived as uncomfortable competition that could lead to what he says would be a reversion into a Cold War. Certainly, we've seen a Cold War mentality. And before we go further on that, I do want to pick up on one of the points that you just mentioned there. You brought up the excellent point about Japan. And President Carter said that that was one of the models for him. He said that when he was president, there was still a lot of hatred. He said that a lot of Americans still despised the Japanese. The Japanese were trading fairly with the United States, but always to its advantage. And how would they see a way around that? So what they did is that he appointed three Americans and the Japanese prime minister of that time appointed three Japanese. They were never identified to this day. We don't know who they are. But these six people got together. He called them the wise men. So I assume back in those days, they were men. But today, Carter wants wise people, men and women, three from the United States, three from China, to achieve what he achieved back in the 70s with the Japanese. Six people working together in a trusted, quiet environment, allowed to work away from the media, away from the public pressures that come with that, to report to the two leaders and then to come and provide solutions. And I think that's his ability. He said he was going to write a letter to President Trump to suggest that model. I don't know how far that's come in the few weeks since then, but I think that's one idea. Uh, and certainly it represents a spirit of the idea that could go forward. But certainly if you look at Huawei, I think it's Huawei and other companies that will also be in the firing line. And also remember this, when it's not China, it's going to be somebody else. It will be India, Brazil, South Africa, whoever happens to be challenging the status quo, those in the leadership poll positions will find them threatening as well. So I don't think it's specific necessarily to China, but China on the rise, China expanding in its shape and form in 2019 represents probably the biggest threat to them in their eyes. And I think that they have never encountered a country that has far more total addressable market as compared to in the past. You look at Japan and Korea, their population is 60 million and the business activities that they could do is really limited and they have to expand worldwide. China itself has a very big domestic market. They don't need to go out, right? So for example, we talk about things like Made in China 2025 and recently the Chinese government, in order to de-escalate the trade tensions, it tries to drop it to appease the US government. I think Will you still continue to see the Chinese moving to become technology independent by focusing on AI, focusing on semiconductors and technology to make sure that they are self-sufficient so that they won't be held hostage? And I think that's very good because it actually promotes competition of innovation between both ends. I mean, we both are one flying cars, I hope. <laughs> well, 
with Made in China 2025, we've seen that take on perhaps a new form in recent weeks and months. And I think that in itself should be interpreted as a clear indication of goodwill, but also actionable proof that China listens, that it's heard the concerns around there. I certainly think, as an independent person in between, that some of the concerns that the Americans have and other countries have about China are very valid. You're always going to be worried when there's someone coming up and the neighbor's going to get the better car or the better gate or the nicer garden than you have. And I think that's fine. But I think, how do you work together? And China, I think, is listening to concerns that are not new. And then how do you create a path forward so that you can all coexist, as you said, peacefully and work together. We had to be very careful about not, again, seeing this as a them and us, but rather than if you create opportunities together, then your people's benefit together. So, for example, when you have thriving trade, you're thriving businesses, you have increased job opportunities for your own domestic market, not just for the Chinese in that case. So I think you need to give it a real 360-degree look. The importance of the U.S.-China relationship has impact to the rest of the world. And one of the things that, I mean, living in Southeast Asia, where we can feel the influence for both China and U.S., we are very afraid to be asked to take sides at some point. And I think the most interesting event that actually happened recently was the recent detention of Huawei's CFO, Meng Wanzhou, in Canada, who happens to be the daughter of Huawei's founder, Ren Zhenfei, immediately after the meeting of President Xi and President Trump. What I'm interested to really understand is what are the perspectives that you could draw on this event? And I would put it together, Canada also got itself caught in the center and also has its own citizens now detained in China. So what do they need to do in order to not have been getting pressure from both sides to actually wanting to do things that they want on each end? I think Canada is in a very difficult position. I think that to some extent it may have chosen to place itself in the middle. But however it occurred in the beginning through, say, an extradition request or how far it had to follow the letter of the law, I think that what we've seen in recent weeks has been difficult, where you see government figures from the Canadian side giving pretty combative press conferences, and I understand why, because they have a number of their nationals in detention in China since the arrest of Meng, so one can perhaps draw linkages between these different events. But it's hard, you know, if I was, say, a crisis comms or uh, advisor at this time, I would say, you know, dial down on the language a bit. Uh, It's not about whether you're right or wrong, but it's about protecting your nationals at this time. So they've been asking or demanding the release of their nationals, but that's only going to trigger an escalator response from the Chinese who will say, well, you know, free Hmong first, and then we'll be happy to free your citizens as well. So I think the language is very important, and the way it's played out publicly hasn't been conducive towards establishing a positive solution for everybody. And I think it's very sad for the two Canadians currently in detention. I think about them and I think about their families. I think it's sad if they are somehow scapegoats in all this. 
And then I think about Meng, this 47-year-old woman who works for a company that, yes, was founded by her father, but ultimately she's the CFO of this company. And it's extraordinary that in some sense that she has been held responsible for an entire company. And, and then you look at the circumstances of it as well. You know, Jeffrey Sachs, in a sense, has become another casualty of this. He wrote a long piece of Project Syndicate, which I'm sure you read, and he said that there's been no precedent for this, that Meng is charged of violating U.S. sanctions on Iran. But even if that was the case, both U.S. and non-U.S. businesses, and a large number of them, have violated U.S. sanctions against Iran and other countries. So he cited the example of J.P. Morgan Chase. They had to pay over $88 million in fines for violating U.S. sanctions against Iran, against Cuba, against Sudan. And yet Jamie Dimon, he says, wasn't grabbed off a plane and whisked into custody. And there have been other examples. Bank of Tokyo, Mitsubishi, Bank of Moscow, Bank of Guam, Bank of America, Barclays, BNP Paribas, who have all found themselves in similar boats in violation, he says. But none of their CEOs, or in the case of Hmong CFOs, have been arrested and publicly arrested in such a way. And then I think about Jeffrey Sachs because, of course, he came off Twitter and we all enjoy reading his tweets. You know, he was an architect of the Millennium Development Goals. He's been absolutely key in the construction and also in the continued life of the SDGs. And yet, you know, he's come off social media, I think, you know, a lot in direct reaction to the hostility that came firing at him saying, you know, how could you say this? How could you stand up for the Chinese? I didn't think he was standing up for the Chinese. I think he was just standing up for his own opinion. And that opinion is as informed as the best out there. And I think that he's unfortunately caught in because I think what he's really trying to argue is the rule of law. Which comes to this point, because most of my audience are people who are from businesses, whether they're in the US, in Asia, looking at this. I think one of the major criticisms that came out is that China always imposed technology transfer and pick into the source codes of US tech companies in the software side and also allow certain unfair competition against US companies before they can enter into China. Were there requirement change in order for the current tensions to end? Because this is one of those conditions that both sides are trying to negotiate currently. That I don't know. But looking ahead, this is what I think is going to happen. At some point, the trade war or the trade dispute will end because it has a limited shelf life. And I think that you have two highly intelligent leaders of two wonderful countries who will not want to see further damage being done until they drive each other both into the ground. So I think that um, the trade dispute in itself, as we see it, will have a limited shelf life. But what I predict will happen after that, say if we look at the period beyond 2019, and say if we think about a three to five year time frame, is that they're going to work on a new sense of normality for themselves. Clearly, I believe that the US-China relationship as we once knew it, uh, probably no longer exists. China is no longer a country which is being racked by poverty, but it's one that still has about 40 million people plus living in poverty. But that's a small percentage when you look at 1.4 billion. So obviously, it has now the opportunity to refine itself rather than to 
dig itself out to above ground as it was in that position 40 years ago. So a different China, a different United States, a different time in the world, and a different set of moving parts. And with that, these two countries as uh, co-leaders in some sense, and I'm also careful to say that because I do think the Chinese will see themselves as necessarily in the same category as the United States. They don't see themselves as as powerful or, or as capable in some ways. But what you will find is that they will begin to find new ways to work with each other. And this series of negotiations is that opportunity to begin constructing that new dynamic. It's going to be difficult, but I think it's going to be exciting. Jack Ma has spoken, for example, about how this trade skirmish will have lasting impact or say 20 years down the line. So is it a good thing? I think it is if they listen to each other and if they adjust and compromise. You know, that's what politics is about. It's not about imposing your will on the other side and forcing them until they have to agree to you. But it's really establishing a two-way relationship that works for both. And I hope in the sense the world works for all because you don't want a China-US relationship that's only beneficial to the two plus billion people on either side. You want a relationship that's going to enrich everybody everywhere, no matter where you happen to be born and no matter where you happen to live. You have given a very good insight. I think what this particular trade skirmish, tensions or trade war, people talk about it, is about a recalibration of the relationship between China and US. What I want to ask is, I think you already gave me some early glimpse of what is this recalibration doing to their current norms. So if you look at it from now, maybe the short term, middle to long term, given that you have also said that it's going to be highly important, maybe if we look at where we are now, 20 years from now, where do you think are the rudiments or the things that will change in this US-China relationship then? I think we need honesty on every side. I think we need to look to the nuances and to begin uh, picking them out. You know, Facebook, which we all know is not available in mainland China and was blocked there many years ago. And in its place came other Chinese models of that. Facebook still has a presence in China. It will shock many people to hear this. And I was too, when I read the article in the New York Times the other day that by revenue, it probably ranks as the seventh largest internet company in China today, because even though it's not available in China without illegally using a VPN, but they churn out about 20,000 ads on Facebook alone from Chinese businesses wanting to reach American and other audiences outside of mainland China. There's a $5 billion in revenue in 2018, and that looks set to continue. So I think that, you know, we need to accept that American businesses are welcome in China, probably not to the extent in which they hope to be. And is that fair or not? Maybe yes, maybe not. And I think the Chinese need to listen to that and need to be very sensitive to the fact that it is a changing world and that they are vulnerable also in a trade dispute. So I think you look at that holistically and you look at the rudiments, as you say, and what would you pick out over here? I would think that if you're a good leader of your country, you would keep foremost in your mind your people and the opportunities they need to live their best life. And I think that is the basic principle of human rights. 
that you have access to the most basic services, whether it be healthcare, education, security, clean air, clean water sources. And I think that none of us as a world can actually boast and say that we have all that already. And I think this is a very good time to actually end this conversation today. But of course, I would love to have you back sometime. Maybe we can discuss the aftermath of it and look at it. And maybe even 20 years from now, when we look back at this point in time, what does it look like? So James, many thanks for coming on the show. Before we close, I want to ask you two questions. So my first question is, can you recommend a book, movie, podcast, or anything which recently made an impact to your work and personal life? Podcast, I would say listen to Analyze Asia. And I would also say there's China in the World podcast by Paul Hanley at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center. And I did have a podcast, as you said, which is still up live on the ChinaUSFocus.com website. But I'll have a new platform starting in the next week. So I'd love to share that with your audience, uh, Bernard. It will be a mixture of media, not only podcasts. And it will be coloring China and what Chinese people are doing around the world. But more importantly, it will be linking that to how we can all get better for ourselves so that, again, we don't see ourselves as countries, but as fellow members of mankind. And books, movies. Movie, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm very keen to watch The Green Book, which has been executive produced by my friend's husband. And I still love Hidden Secrets, which I watched on the plane back from the States two weeks ago. And I was very interested in the documentary RBG Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which I thought was illuminating in many ways. And books. I brought back a number of books from the United States, all of which I'm reading right now. I was given a book by President Carter, Faith, A Journey for All, which won the Grammy Award for Spoken Word Album a few days ago in Los Angeles. It's his second Grammy. I found a first edition copy of The Strategy of Peace by Senator John F. Kennedy. And I went to the National Civil and Human Rights Museum, and I was delighted not only to be able to pick up a copy there of Rosa Parks' My Story, which recounts the episode of a life that changed the civil rights movement, but I was also privileged to be able to donate a copy of that book to a local library in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm, that's really a good set of recommendations. In fact, I should check out some of those since I'm actually going to Atlanta for work in the coming week. So how do my audience find you? They can find me on Twitter where my social handle is at James Chow, one word, and Chow is C-H-A-U. I am on Facebook, but I don't check it very much. And you can see some of my work on ChinaUSFocus.com. But I think much, much more importantly on ChinaUSFocus.com, you can find the works of Chinese, American and international opinion leaders all talking about what I think is potentially the most transformative bilateral relationship in our world at this time. And I definitely will get the link to your new platform and put it on the show notes when we put this episode up. And you can Google me at Bernard Leong or you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, Himalaya and also everywhere else. So you can tweet to me your feedback. And of course, recently we have launched our audience survey. So please fill it up because we would like to know your feedback and what is the type of content you would be interested. And once again, James, 
Many thanks for coming on the show and it's great to connect with you again. And I think let's have this conversation again sometime soon. Thank you very much, Bernard, and good luck.